I love sets of things. Jewelry sets, obviously, are my favorite kind of set. That kind with earrings and a necklace and a ring or a bracelet, you know, you want three. I'm looking at my mother, who's here this weekend, who's welcome to give me any of her jewelry sets at any time. <laughs> I am almost as fond, though, of sets of concepts. And so here we are this morning in the middle of our own set, the second in a three-part series looking at the three spiritual pains as identified by Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture. As a quick recap for those of you who missed last week, Adler thought that the religious impulse was born out of our experience of pain in the world. And he identified three key pains as particularly vital to the modern psyche. The first, which we talked about last Sunday, was our sense of insignificance in the world, in the cosmos. So we figured that one out already. If you weren't here last week, you can go online to hear the platform and discover the meaning of life, which is great. <laughs> the second spiritual pain, and the one we'll examine a little bit today, is that of suffering, or more specifically, our experience of the suffering of others, the suffering that surrounds us in the world and is part of the human condition. Here is how Felix Adler described that experience of suffering. Quote, the second mode of pain is due to the fate of those innumerable fellow beings who perish by the wayside while mankind slowly and awkwardly tries to achieve progress. I mean those many thousands who are dying unhelped in the hospitals. I mean the victims of the foul conditions that exist in the slums. I mean the millions of young lives that were cut short during the late war. We stand, as it were, on the shore and see multitudes of our fellow beings struggling in the water, stretching forth their arms, sinking, drowning, and we are powerless to assist them. End quote. Adler was writing, you might remember, in the early 20th century in this particular book, having seen the Industrial Revolution in America and the conditions created in tenements and in factories across the country. His words, though, ring true to us today. As I reread those words for this platform about the people reaching out of the water, who among us can rid from our minds the images that came to us of New Orleans in the aftermath of Katrina and the broken levees? Who can forget the pictures of the Haitians struggling after the earthquake or the Pakistani people after the floods? We are perhaps even more than in Adler's time subject to an onslaught of these images unable to pretend that our little comfortable world is what the majority of people experience, unable to pretend that there are not those who are drowning before our very eyes. This pain for Adler is a pang of injustice, a pang of inequality. It is not quite our experience of suffering when we lo lose someone we love to death, or when our own lives travel a sad or lonely road. 
nor the suffering we experience when we see those we love battle sickness or struggle in their lives. Adler addresses those pangs in other places, and every religious community, this one included, searches for ways to support people in this kind of personal suffering. Wes is known, I think, in fact, for how beautifully we do that, for the casseroles and the hospital visits and the love. No one can fully share or understand another's deep personal suffering, but we can accompany each other on the road, and we know that in that companionship is the beginning of an answer. Adler, though, is talking about the suffering we see around us throughout the world, the suffering that continues despite our efforts at creating justice, the suffering that exists because of the injustice that remains. I followed to some extent the recent earthquakes in New Zealand. There is no question that there was human suffering in that event. Although the death toll was nothing like that in Haiti, the lower number hardly makes the individual death easier to bear. But New Zealand is a relatively wealthy country with a strong infrastructure, with homeowners who have insurance and the means to rebuild, with buildings that are built well in the first place. Our hearts go out every time there is a loss of life in the world, but they break when that loss of life seems preventable, when the loss is made so much worse because of a society that does not care for its most vulnerable. The question that Adler seems to be asking, the particular pain that he seeks to identify, is how we, as justice seekers, as instigators for change, how we watch as millions suffer and die, even while justice moves its slow way forward. How do we handle the reality that we will not be able to save everyone, that undoubtedly the world will know great suffering while we continue to work, passionately, steadfastly, and never quickly enough. I can't think about suffering and our awareness of it without thinking about the Buddha. Almost every religious tradition has some kind of story about its founding. Even we mythologize, to a certain extent, our founder and his first inspiring address at the tender age of 24. And Buddhism is no different. Buddhism was born, the story goes, when a young prince grew to know of suffering in the world. Here is how they tell the story. The prince Siddhartha, who lived in the 5th century before the Common Era, was born into the royal family of a large tribe in what is now Nepal. As a baby, a holy man prophesied that he would be either a military commander or a spiritual teacher. In an attempt to make sure that he would become the former, Siddhartha's father raised him sheltered in the palace, surrounded by luxury and wealth, but cut off from the rest of the world. But of course, we can never really make our children become what we want, can we? <laughs> On a trip in his chariot outside the palace walls, the young adult Siddhartha peered out his window and began to see the world around him. What he saw are referred to as the four passing sights, an old man, a sick man, a funeral procession, and finally, an ascetic who had renounced the luxuries and comforts of the world in an attempt to find release from the world's suffering. Siddhartha could not go back to the life his father had created for him. 
He left his father, and in a tricky part of the story for me, his wife and newborn son, and traveled with five companions, trying to find his own release from the suffering around him. They tried physical responses like self-flagellation and body postures. They ate nothing in an attempt to renounce everything in the world. And still, they were aware of the suffering they saw. Siddhartha realized that the only way he could escape suffering was through discipline of the mind. And so he ate to give himself some strength, at which point his companions deserted him, shocked at the way he had given in to the world. The story says that he drank from the bowl of milk a little girl offered him. Alone, Siddhartha sat under a tree and waited, entering into a state of deep meditation. The forces of the world battled within his mind, and he emerged victorious, having achieved enlightenment and thus a release from suffering. He found his five companions again and began to teach them what he had discovered. Over the course of a long lifetime, he taught people how to discipline their minds, how to come to an awareness that the world did not matter and that true enlightenment was within. Buddhism, at least in a kind of whitewashed Western formulation, is ever-increasing in popularity in America. But when I first studied Buddhism, when I first really read about the story of its creation and core principles, non-attachment, release from suffering, the enlightenment found in the disciplined mind, I thought, my goodness, that seems awfully selfish, doesn't it? Yes, that's the spiritual awakening of a religious leader. Buddhism is selfish. It doesn't sound quite right, does it? <laughs> and yet there are some sects, some practices of Buddhism that I simply cannot relate to, sects that emphasize the availability of enlightenment to a small number of individuals, usually monks, who live on hillsides in isolation and silence for the rest of their lives, detached from the world and all that it holds. But like any religious movement, like any movement at all, Buddhism has many forms. And indeed, Buddhism, as practiced by millions of adherents, is a religion that seems to have uniquely tapped into the center of compassion. Buddhism is divided into two major categories, Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, which have some cultural and practice differences and which approach enlightenment differently. The first, Theravada, sees wisdom as the key to enlightenment, while the second, Mahayana, focuses on compassion. I think it's the idea of compassion as the key to enlightenment that does get me, the sense that our salvation depends on each other, on how we are with each other. It seems to me to resonate with our own emphasis on relationships, our belief in the interdependence of existence. One of the key ethical culture concepts is that we cannot be our full selves. We cannot truly be ethical beings unless we are in relationship to others. Compassion, perhaps, is our key to salvation too, our way of understanding the world. But how does this solve the problem that Adler posed? How do we, or how do the Buddhists, for that matter, use compassion to help ourselves live with all the suffering that we see? How does caring about the people who are dying make it any more acceptable that they are? I think part of the answer may lie in the idea that there is no answer, which actually sounds sort of Zen to me, that we cannot find a true alleviation for this spiritual pain. 
Perhaps it is the awareness of suffering, the pain itself, that is the gift. It spurs us to justice work, of course, but it also helps us to feel a connection to other human beings, to the world we inhabit. I know the answer is not, is never shutting our eyes to the suffering or somehow justifying it as acceptable within the large movement of the world. The deep suffering of others, both on a personal level and on a global level, asks for our acknowledgement, our presence, our witness to it. I learned this lesson myself during my chaplaincy. You know, I think many clergy start the journey toward religious leadership because of their desire to help people, to be a force for change in an individual life or in the world or the community. The hospital chaplaincy unit, which is required by many religious traditions as part of clergy training, teaches us, taught me, above all, that I couldn't always help. In fact, I wasn't even allowed to in chaplaincy. One of my wards was on floor four at the Washington Hospital Center, the high-risk pregnancy ward. I loved it partly because women were patients there for weeks, sometimes months at a time. So unlike the revolving door one finds in most hospital settings, I was able to build real relationships with the women that I served. I loved it, and it drove me crazy. Many of the women in the ward were there because they had lost pregnancies and were trying desperately to hold on to this one. Some of them were successful and some were not. Most of the babies who were born to my patients I ended up visiting in the NICU, tiny little beings struggling to hang on just as their mothers had. But that wasn't the hard part. That was just what life does, offers us beauty and tragedy in the same breath. The hard part was the stories of these women's lives, the complicated relationships and situations they faced at home. And of course, I mostly visited the ones with the hardest situations. The women with strong support networks and resources were polite enough, but didn't really need the chaplain to keep them company. I remember especially one young woman, not yet 20. Unlike the other women on the floor, she did not have a complicated medical condition. She had been admitted after a car accident in which she was thrown from her boyfriend's truck. Amazingly, she and the baby were fine, but the boyfriend had taken off and she didn't know where to go next. She stayed in the hospital an extra day or two while the social worker tried to find her a shelter. That was the social worker's job, after all, to actually try to solve the problem. My job was just to listen. So I did. I listened to her talk about her difficult childhood and home life, her conservative parents who wouldn't welcome her back, her work as an exotic dancer, which was no longer possible since she was pregnant, her lost hope that this boyfriend would stick around. I couldn't solve her problems, and in fact, I was specifically prohibited from doing so by hospital policies. I could just bear witness to her suffering. It was painful, but it also felt like a deep honor to acknowledge the grief before me, and to acknowledge the woman experiencing it. One of the greatest experiences of pain, I think, is to suffer both in a physical or mental way, and also to suffer the indignity of not being seen, not being acknowledged. This second kind of suffering is the one that I think we can alleviate, and Adler thought so too. 
Ethical culture, as you've heard me say about a million times now, is based on the idea of the inherent worth of every person, the human dignity that everyone carries within them. Adler tied the acknowledgement of this worth directly to the experience of seeing others suffer, and I think his work there gives us a window into how we can be present to the world's great suffering. Many a man, Adler wrote, many a woman especially, exemplifies the dignity of human nature amid the most repellent conditions. We must therefore proceed in both directions. We must sharpen the effort to improve those conditions, which are instrumental to the development of the moral nature of man. There must be no relaxation, no lying down under the difficulties that bar the way. And at the same time, we must vindicate the present worth which is independent of those conditions, end quote. In other words, even while we mourn those who suffer and work to change the conditions that lead to that suffering, we also honor the worth of the sufferers. We hold up the essential dignity of their humanity and of their situation. The only thing I could give that young woman in the hospital was my assurance that she was worthy, that she and her story had dignity. This, it seems to me, is a uniquely religious response, perhaps a uniquely ethical culture response. And though it does not change the pain we feel as we see the suffering, it brings our values, our care into that pain. I think Buddhist teachers might resonate with this idea of a dual response to suffering. Jack Kornfield, an American Buddhist who was trained in Thailand and India and who founded the Insight Meditation Society here in the States, responds to the concern that Buddhism is about distancing oneself in his book, Meditation for Beginners. Some people think of meditation, he writes, not as a practice that makes us more present, but as something that will lead us away from the world. He goes on to say that our connection to social responsibility is a key part of our life and must therefore also be part of our meditative practice. He writes about two ways to respond to the injustice we see in the world. First, to try to alleviate it by acting for change in society. And second, to work to alleviate the root causes of injustice, things like hatred, fear, and anger. Meditation, he would say, helps us to remove those emotions from our own lives and therefore contributes to the global struggle for justice. He goes on, Quote, there is also a very real danger that we could use meditation as a way of retreating from the world. There is a teaching in the Buddhist tradition called the near enemies. The near enemy of compassion is pity. Oh, that poor person over there, they are suffering. I do not suffer like that. Pity keeps us separate from and superior to those for whom we believe we experience compassion. The near enemy of equanimity, he goes on, or a balanced mind, is indifference. Real equanimity arises when our hearts are open and we experience everything that the world presents to us with balance, love, and understanding." End quote. Our theme this month is awe and wonder, a theme we introduced with our beautiful story this morning. I have read that story many times to my own daughter and it always makes me cry. There's something about the sense of oneness that it invites, our connection to this wide, marvelous world, and the idea that the world is present for us, available to us, a source of joy. 
But what about the other part of the world, the part we've been talking about today? It wouldn't make much of a children's book to talk about all the suffering the world experienced on the day you were born. But that story is a true one, just as true as the moon pulling the tides and the Arctic terns flying overhead. How do we maintain our sense of awe and wonder even while we see and acknowledge the suffering around us? We've started this year themed discussions as part of our adult education program, a chance to gather a small group together and look at the month's theme from the lens of ethical culture, humanism, and other religious traditions, as well as our own experience. They are scheduled for the first Tuesday of the month. You're always welcome to come. I found myself actually taking notes at those discussions because they so enrich my own thinking about the topic. They weren't intended as a way to get my platforms better, but they're really helpful, so please do come. I found myself taking, uh, taking notes this time as we discussed what our own experiences of awe and wonder were and tried to tackle how to define the terms. We kept returning to the idea that awe and wonder were not always experiences of beauty or joy. That we might feel a sense of awe when we lose someone we love or when nature sweeps through with destructive force. What we were trying to get at, I think, is that awe and wonder isn't just about the warm fuzzies, but about the whole range of human and cosmic existence, about our presence to the world and our engagement in it. Now, I don't want to get carried away. I'm not suggesting that we simply can transform our pain at world suffering into a kind of, isn't the world amazing and complex enlightenment? I don't think that's possible, and it also doesn't really honor the depth of the suffering. But I wonder if in our being present to the suffering and in our acknowledgement of the worth of all who suffer, in our acknowledgement that this suffering is part of life, part of the world, even as we try to change the conditions that create it, if somewhere in there we might not be able to find a way to be present to awe and wonder in its more complicated form. Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist teacher I quoted earlier, has a lovely piece about this. He writes, we are not running away from the world at all. We are sitting down right in the middle of everything and paying attention to everything that is present, whether it is something pleasurable or something painful and beginning to observe it, to learn from it, and to learn a wise way of relating to everything in our lives. This week's spiritual pain, the pain of seeing others suffer, may be the one of Adler's that I resonate with most. I feel acutely the injustice in the world and the horrific situations it causes, so acutely that I'm sometimes tempted to bury my head in the sand, turn off the TV, close my eyes to the horror. What I think we are asked to do instead, by Adler, by Buddha, by our own conscience, is to honor the suffering with our work and our courage, and to honor the people who suffer with our awareness. And somehow, in the midst of it all, to see the way that suffering is woven into the beauty of the world, the way the whole thing calls for our attention and our awe.